one of my supervisors did say after I'd shown them calf, oh, well, you know, this is great, but we want to make sure that you're not, you know, feeling pressured every month to, you know, essentially go and and have, go and have sex in order to write something or, or, or new have about more sex partners to experience the difference between yeah i mean i'm thinking like how do you research that the person in the story is my friend i am in an open relationship with my partner which is very useful you're my hero <laughs> go on i'm listening and cut The MS Positive Podcast is a platform where people living with multiple sclerosis come to share everything else they do with their lives aside from being an MS patient. Among our guests are artists, singers, bloggers, actors, authors, DJs, and much more. And yeah, also health professionals because we have to stay in the know. We're more than MS. Hello and welcome to the EMS Positive Podcast. Uh, today I have a special guest. She's a writer from the UK. Her name is Melissa One. She's a writer living between Manchester and Leeds in the north of England. She was born to a Chinese mother and Dutch father and grew up in the Netherlands before moving to the UK age eight. She was awarded the BAME Writer Scholarship to study creative writing at the University of East Anglia and her short stories have been published by independent presses in the UK, including in the best British short stories. She was diagnosed with RMS in 2020 and now gets around in her wheelchair or on her electric bike. Melissa is currently a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds looking at the writing of sex and its intersection with disability. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very excited to be here in my first kind of official podcast recording thing. This wow. is all very fancy. Oh my God. <laughs> I, got, I got the first, um, the premiere on you. Thank you so much yeah. for being here and accepting the invitation. We're glad to have you. I'm really glad to speak with you, Maite, really. Awesome. Like I said, you were awarded the BAME Writer Scholarship to go uh, to the university and study your uh, creative writing. We are not very familiar with the scholarship uh, on this side of the world, but it is very interesting, very important for writers like you. So can you tell us what the process to apply for the scholarship is and the process to be awarded? And let me uh, state that this um, particular scholarship is open to Black, Asian, and minority ethnic writers. So you fall under that ca category and tell us how, please. Yes, I fall under the category because my mother is uh, Chinese. She's born in Hong Kong and uh, my father is Dutch. And so I suppose I fall into the minority ethnic uh, category, even though I am I am white presenting. And so, you know, it might not be obvious how, how I am, B-A-M-E. But to tell you about the scholarship a little bit, it's one of probably, I think there's, I think the University of East Anglia offer maybe over 10 scholarships uh, for writers and usually they are rewarded on the basis of merit so you know the person who has the best uh, grades I think maybe or has previous publications I know that in the US maybe you're familiar with the Iowa Writers Workshop which is is kind of very famous there UEA or the University of East Anglia is kind of the equivalent in uh, the UK so it was the first a university in England to offer creative writing as a kind of higher education uh, subject, you know, as like a, as an official thing that you can do a degree in, basically. And so it's incredibly competitive, because it's still, you know, it is still considered the, the creative writing course in England, if you're wanting to be a writer, it really puts you in touch with a lot of um, published authors and you're, you know, you, you're kind of exposed to um, networks that you wouldn't be otherwise. Um, and so competition for the course itself, but also for the scholarships was incredibly high. But the scholarship that I was awarded was, I think it was, I was awarded it in its first year of running. It was a crowdfunded scholarship, which was set up by an author called Louise Doughty, who's based in, in England. Essentially, she's through 
big parties, I think, and asked other other writers to contribute uh, money to the scholarship, which would enable somebody who wasn't able to afford um, paying for the course outright would enable them to study. So the process to apply for it, you probably had to submit uh, your work, right? And um, yes, it, was it yeah. several rounds? There's there's a round for being accepted onto the course in general, but then that's kind of it. Once you're accepted, then you get put forward for, I think you actually get put forward for all of the scholarships that are available. And I mean, if, if, you're, if you're BAME, you would get put forward for, for that scholarship as well. And then the scholarships are kind of a doled out that way nice and it's a, it's a full scholarship correct it's a scholarship it was a full 100%. scholarship nice. that's right it was a full scholarship for my tuition fees but also for my living so it was amazing because it enabled me to go down to Norwich and live there for a year as well and, and essentially be paid you know as though I was working full-time so you were diagnosed with RMS in 2020 so you're fairly new let's say to multiple sclerosis could you share your MS diagnosis uh, story. How were you diagnosed? What were your symptoms? How long did it take? Especially, I ask you, how long did it take? Because uh, I know uh, several people in the UK that live with multiple sclerosis, and they go from doctor to doctor, you know, spinning their wheels and wasting time that we cannot afford to waste. And unfortunately, I've heard that that type of story more from people that live in the UK. So, how was your your process like was it long or was it right away so I think it's worth saying um that my diagnosis coincided with or the experience of my symptoms coincided with COVID (laughs) so I was diagnosed I think a couple of months after the first lockdown in the UK so it was a kind of it was a strange period anyway um, but in terms of my symptoms, the the one um, that they were able to diagnose it based on was a kind of strangeness in my in my right leg, kind of the leg going you know going dead uh, after I'd been walking for like half an hour. If I sat down, then the leg would recover and I'd be able to you know. So I I didn't really notice it because it didn't affect my day to day until probably I think it started maybe around. Or I noticed it around the summer 2019, which is when I was doing my MA actually in uh, in Norwich. So I was coming to the end of the MA and I kind of just noticed that my legs sometimes would, you know, if I'd been walking for half an hour usually, uh, then I would start to notice I'd have to kind of drag it, you know, a bit. Um, and it kind of started getting a little bit worse over, you know, as time passed. So it started happening sooner. So, you know, after I'd been walking 20 minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, and then it spread to my other leg. And so at this point, I think I was, um, I was working for a theater here in Manchester and it was my manager who said, you know, we were walking to a meeting together. Uh, in the library, which was like 20 minutes away. And I said, oh, I've got this weird thing in my leg that keeps happening. Um, And she said, you should go, (laughs) you should go and get that uh, checked. And then COVID happened, lockdown happened. So I did see about, I think, six different GPs at my practice who, you know, couldn't quite figure out what was, what was going on, because I was still you know, usually able to able to walk. I wasn't really noticing the symptoms until after I'd, you know, fatigued my fatigued my muscles or fatigued my legs um, after a while. I, yeah, I think it was probably the sixth GP who sent me to a neurologist and sent me for a brain scan. And it was the neurologist who said, there's evidence on your scan, not just in this one, but actually when we look back, you had a scan back in 2015, 2015, when I'd had issues with my vision. And I thought I thought it was just prescription, you know, it was just prescription vision issues. Um, but they sent me for a scan. They didn't follow up on anything because I think you have to present with more than one symptom. Is that right? To be diagnosed for them to be able to actually make a diagnosis. And so because I only had optic neuritis at that time. But did they mention optic neuritis at the time or they just said that you had like vision problems? Because optic neuritis is uh, typical of multiple sclerosis. So it's a big red flag. Yeah, no, they didn't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they d- okay. they didn't. Yeah, and it wasn't until the neurologist looked at, looked back at those scans from 2015 that he said, "I think actually there was evidence already of MS back then." Um, but obviously, we yeah, we didn't 
uh, diagnose it until I started having issues with my walking. So are you uh, currently on medication or treatment for multiple sclerosis? I am. So the treatment thing is also an interesting one to discuss because it seems like in in the UK, or at least at my practice, um, the neurologist said oh, there's there's currently no evidence to suggest that it's better to either go in hard fast or whether it's better to start on a low efficacy treatment and escalate. I think actually it turns out there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that it is better to go in hard fast. Um, but at the time, you know, when you're diagnosed, you don't know anything about you don't know anything about multiple sclerosis unless you know somebody, you know, and have had experience. But you kind of, <laughs> you, you kind of, yeah. yeah, you kind of go in and are just completely, you know, thinking, okay, I I trust the neurologist to tell me what the best thing is. But essentially, he said, because there's no evidence, it just means that you can pick whatever you want and go home and you do you do your own you research, do your research and you pick one and you pick you pick which one you think. I've heard and that I, many and, times. That's why I'm. Yeah. Listening carefully because, uh, but yeah. particularly in in the UK, it's like common. This is very interesting because I wonder whether this is standard practice across the whole of the UK because it is, it is, it is interesting. I think the fact that this is still the this is still the line that's uh, being you know given in clinic is actually that there is no evidence when there is you know that there, there is lots of evidence to suggest that it is better to go in hard fast, you know, and to treat this, they're starting to say, you know, treating, treating MS like stroke. So as though it's, you know, a really a serious event that's happened, you try to treat it with the best available medications as early as possible to give the person the best chance of recovery. But because, because I, the choice was left up to me, I was thinking about these things are also important. So maybe this is why they do it. So I was thinking about, you know, what, what is most convenient for me? What's the thing that I'm most likely to be able to continue taking? So I chose um, Tecfidera. I'm not sure what it's, whether it's the same brand name. Tecfidera is uh, a pill. Yeah, that's it. Twice taken twice twice daily. Yes. And I thought, okay, it's medium efficacy. So it's not, it's not high efficacy, but it's not low efficacy. It's kind of like, well, let's just, you know, give this a try. But after being on it for about a year, they found, uh, you know, evidence of uh, no, more, more lesions. information on the on the brain. And so that's why okay. I escalated to my current treatment, which is Casimpta, uh, which is the injectable. Big transition uh, from taking a pill to inject yourself. So did you get any, any guidance on uh, how to inject and uh, how is it going? Casimpta, they send a nurse to do your first, uh, to be there with you. Um, for your first injection and so it was fine and they're um what are they like EpiPens you know you store them in the fridge and it's really simple you don't see the needle I wasn't really worried about starting the injectable and it's been you know it's been fine so far. <laughs> How are um your your MRIs after Casimta? Any activity on your MRIs or? I've just had a scan in December so I'm waiting for I'm waiting for results because I think I started I started Casimpta January last year so I've I've been on it for a year now so I'll find out about the the scans soon. Okay, well good luck. I hope that this is the one for you. I have I have a switch medications as well and uh, depending on which medication you are on, not all of them have the same protocol but you have to go through this uh process to like get off of it and clean clean your body. And during that period, it's it's difficult. Uh, sometimes you have flare-ups. Uh, it's not fun. Now you mentioned that your doctor said he didn't. He wasn't sure if it was a good idea to start with something more mild or something more aggressive. No, he said there was no. He said there was no evidence. No evidence <laughs> to suggest that one was one option was better than the other. Right. I have to say, one neurologist, well-known neurologist here in the United States. Made a comment, an, um, an informal comment uh, during a conversation that we had, that sometimes neurologists make the mistake of starting a, new, a newly diagnosed patient in a medication that is too strong. And that sometimes that causes, um, I shouldn't use the word causes, but uh, sometimes people experience physical disability faster because of the effects of the medication. And I'm just going to leave it there. 
Yeah, that's something that I heard from a very well-known MS specialized neurologist, not just a regular neurologist. It's interesting that your doctor said that. That's why um came to my mind. I remember when he said that because, you know, it's something maybe that they look at when they are analyzing MRIs. You know, MS is different for everybody. So MRIs look very different. I mean, you could have a million uh, lesions and you could walk just fine. And there's only one that maybe causes all trouble. So it doesn't really, there's not a pattern. Now, when they look at lesions, they look at location, shape as well, more than how many lesions you have. And so that, it's a determining factor for their approach to your treatment. So maybe there's more to that that he didn't mention at the moment. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Could be. And sometimes doctors have a very short time for your visit also. So they cannot give you a class in multiple squirrels. They send you home, which I think is not right. Uh, but I understand how the business work. It's not always the case. I have to say, I've heard stories of other people that have actually at, at a support group, maybe two, three weeks ago, I met someone and he was uh, saying that his doctor spent with him. The, the first appointment was two hours long. He took all the time to explain it to him. So I guess it depends on the practice. It does. I, I hear good and bad stories as well from people I speak to. Yeah. All right. So let's move on from that. Thank you for sharing your experience with your diagnosis and um, your symptoms. So you write fiction, short stories. I have some here, San Salvador. He moved in. To do that, he had to leave his wife. He arrived with his life neatly folded in cardboard boxes, squeezed it into my one bedroom apartment. He leaned his road bike against the bookcase and kept a gathering of empty beer bottles by the door, which he called his art installation. Joseph, when it's 3 a.m. and I still can't sleep. Yes, mother, he smiled. I was not his mother, but what could I say? I found it difficult to let this man go, almost as though he had been a son, and every morning I woke and felt his blood pump through my veins until I couldn't help but think, where's Joseph? And my favorite <laughs> ghost story. <laughs> All right, so how do we start? So my favorite is ghost story for a reason. Uh, ghost story is... Um, it's a story about sex with a ghost. Well, there's more to it, but that's obviously the, the part the that tagline. really <laughs> you will remember, especially because this young lady here, uh, it's such a, an, an amazing writer. And I, I really commend you for that because you are so good at transporting the mind of the reader, you know, and, and their imagination to the place that you are presenting. The, the, your descriptive words, the way that you describe the atmosphere, the setting, the characters, you can see it in your head like a movie. That is exactly the job of a good writer. I mean, when you are successful at doing that, you can proclaim yourself as an accomplished writer because wow. that's Thank what you. the goal is. The goal is to get people's attention, but keep their attention and that the person that's reading your words can really uh, travel to the story and get Im immersed in the story and see the characters. And uh, you are very explicit when you talk about sex, which I appreciate, to be honest with you, in a subtle, explicit way. Does that make sense? It's great. To me, it's, it's amazing. So tell us about uh, your style of writing, this theme that you have in common in, in many of your short stories and why you chose fiction and things like that? I started trying to write fiction probably 216 is when I first thought, okay, I will, I will give it a shot. And I started with a short story because I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd not trained as a, as a writer. I didn't study uh, literature at university level. So I kind of, I think the last time I studied it was at GCSE level. So it, it wasn't something that I had a kind of a formal education in, not that you need it, I don't think, to be a writer. Um, but the reason I started with a short story is because it felt a little bit more doable for me than than thinking about setting out to write a whole novel when I'd never, I'd never tried to write fiction before you know so the, the short form seemed really useful as a kind of um as a mode for being able to just try out different things you know and see and see whether or not things were working when I went to study at UEA uh in 2018 
I was still, I would say, quite early in my journey as a writer. And what was interesting then in the workshops was that our workshop tutor, um, Andrew Cowan, he said, what's interesting this year is that all of your work is so full of sex. And I thought it was an interesting comment because when I looked at my work, I was talking about sex, but I was never actually explicitly writing it or no, nobody was really explicitly writing it. You know, often it's a thing that's referenced as a kind of a subject, perhaps, you know, or things are, things are hinted at. Um, but never actually explicitly written. And so part of my ambition with, <laughs> and it is kind of an experiment, you know, is that- It's a great I, experiment. <laughs> yeah, because I don't, I don't know what the, what the best ways of doing it are or because there is still so much taboo around sex that it always, it always does feel like you are, you are pushing at something, you know, when you, when you make a, you make a, a kind of an explicit stand and say, okay, I am going to write, you know, these these words that some people maybe even consider, uh, you know, swear words or whatever they wouldn't they wouldn't consider consider them to be part of uh, literature. Let's say, um, I mean, obviously there are different traditions of you know writing. I think the French tradition has a lot more uh, sex writing in their in their literature, but if you look at contemporary literature, even in the UK today, it kind of, it skips, it skips the sex or avoids the sex in a kind of habitual, like secondhand way, like without really thinking about it. And what's interesting is that my first published story also does this. So I'm thinking a lot at the moment in my PhD about the line break in fiction. So if you imagine you, the sim, the same convention exists in film as well. So if you imagine that we see we see a couple going upstairs to bed, then the door closes and then we wake up the morning after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it implies um, that they um, it implies have sex, but without, it doesn't it doesn't and the, show the same, it. The same convention exists also yeah. in in fiction. So, you know, you write up until the couple going upstairs to bed and then it's you jump to the next to the next scene and my first published story does does that very same thing and it's kind of I think because it's so it is such a convention you don't even really question it you embody it as that is the way to write uh sex and so lots of my work now is trying to do the opposite (laughs) and trying to actually you know what happens when you when you do write sex um you know is it possible to to still write a good story um, even when including the sex in. So you were uh, a little bit skeptical maybe and scared of what the reaction was going to be of, of the readers, if if they were going to be receptive to using that type of language, you know, explicit, just like that. Like we would say it and in, in, uh, we would talk about it in a, in a regular conversation. But when you read it, it's, it's a different perception. Am I... Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, I I think so because you know the irony obviously is that we live in an extremely hypersexualized society. You know, even just from listening to pop song lyrics or yeah. adverts, you know, whatever, uh, yes. sex is everywhere. And the but... movies now are very explicit. I mean, have you watched a Spanish movie? Which one <laughs> from Spain? Uh, there's. I cannot think of one right now, but <laughs> one that I really want to watch is um, Madres Paralelas. Madres Paralelas. I have to look it up. Where is that at? Parallel Mothers. I think it's. Uh, no. I've his name is, but he's a kind of renowned Spanish film director. Well, the movies from Spain they have they have always had a lot of uh, nudity. Uh, they're known for that. Uh, they are like you can see everything. Before they would like cover, you know parts of the body and will be more subtle about it now they don't even worry about it and um and movies in the united states also they don't you know they don't um cover the scenes or nothing it's just explicit so sex is everywhere and with the access to the internet but like you said maybe there is when it comes to uh, writing it it's maybe not as present as it is on on the visual platforms Unless you're, you know, writing as a, a genre fiction writer, you know, unless you're writing romance fiction and then it's, you know, then it's expected. But also they have to work within kind of strict conventions of actually what 
you know, what is uh, usual for their readers to read as well. So I think a lot of the a lot of the writing that I'm doing is is trying to think about, you know, it's not just like, can we can we write sex and how can we do it well? Because obviously, yes, you can write it. And there are writers who have done it well, and who, who do it well. But it's kind of it's more a it's become more of a question of representation of, you know, different kinds of sex or different ways of having sex. Because the the line break, it just, it presumes so much, you know, about the kind of sex that readers are imagining takes place there. Um, and when you don't see it, you don't actually, you don't actually get the, the nuanced details of actually what, you know, what is happening and all of, all of the difficulties or all of the, you know, like, um, all of the interesting stuff, basically, about about character, I think, is happening there in that gap, um, and not and not being explored. So that's something that uh, I was reading a or an article that you wrote uh, for the Word Factory uh, between poetry and pornography, and you talk uh, about that in that article uh, how writers touch the theme of sex on the on the surface, like what you just explained how. Um, it's not something that is really uh, explored and more detailed when they express it. It's more on the surface, more subtle. And, and you kind of discern from what you're reading that that's what's happening, but it's yeah, not direct. It. So it's something that's that it. I re really like about your writing because you actually go there. I don't feel offended. I don't think it's uh, dirty. I, I think it's it's just the way we would talk about sex. It's, it's, it's more normalized in your words when you when you write it that's what I'm trying to do I'm trying to kind of get away from this feeling of it being you know being taboo and it being a thing that we shouldn't speak about and I feel like the more you know the more people can just openly speak about sex and write about sex the better for everybody's actual sexual experiences I think you know because there's so much mythology around uh, what sex is or what it should be or what it should look like and you know I have to say as somebody who's uh, become disabled now it's there is a huge you know interest it opens up a really really interesting world because all of a sudden you're having to pay attention to the body and actually what is working and what isn't how and things that, feel different. Useful. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that things feel different for, you know, even when I was an able-bodied woman, I think that things would feel different to me compared to, you know, a friend of mine. So it's just, it's about, I feel as though a lot of it is about kind of just broadening what we, what we consider to be sexual pleasure or sexual experience. Um, and disability has been actually a really useful tool for that. Right. And that's what you are currently writing or researching on uh, in your current PhD that you are working on is writing on sex and, and disability. And I read your work, CAF. It's funny because I start reading it and it start talking about an ana analogy between CAF, your, you know, the, the muscle on the back of your leg and CAF, the baby of a cow. So all of a sudden you turn it around and we are having sex. <laughs> <laughs> you are sharing your own experience? Yes, I am. And you incorporate disability, how it has changed the game and how self-conscious it has made you and all that. Let's, let's dig into that. I mean, this was a story I wrote at the very beginning of my PhD. It was the first thing I wrote actually for it. And I'd been thinking a lot about, you know, it seems like how to how to bring together, you know, sex on one hand, disability on the other into into stories, you know, how how to make them work it was something that wasn't obvious <laughs> to me when I first I mean I guess that's why you're doing a PhD basically you know you're asking you're asking those questions this story it's a kind of departure from the usual stuff that I write because usually I write much more kind of traditional fiction work so stuff that is you know I'm sure there are elements that will be drawn from real life but it's essentially made up um, whereas this is the first piece I wrote, which is probably more, I don't like any of the terms that are used, but I think the term that would be used for this kind of work is 
auto fiction. It's a story, but it draws it draws from real experience. Yeah, this is the first uh, story of its kind that I've done, but I'm doing much more, much more work like that because I think, you know, it's especially when you're thinking about disability. I understand. I I mean, I don't understand my own disability. Actually, that's incorrect. <laughs> I don't think we do. <laughs> I don't don't feel alone. No, yeah, I don't understand my disability. (laughs) We're on the same boat. But I have, you know, I have experience of what it what it feels like to live to live in this body and the kind of the strange the strangeness of the you know the kind of the liminal the half the half kind of disabled sometimes disabled not you know because I still I although I've started using a wheelchair as of last year you know, which has been, for me, has been, it's Freedom. been a game, game changer. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and uh, it's just meant that I'm able to go and do things that I wouldn't be able to if I wasn't using the chair. But I still also get around, you know, as you mentioned, I still get around on my bike. And sometimes if you were to see me, you know, walking from my bike to a cafe or, you know, you might not understand actually that I'm also a wheelchair user. And it seems quite a radical switch. But at the same time, that is, you know, that's the experience of of my body. And I'm sure, you know, I'm not alone when it comes to other people with MS. Yeah, people think of not only MS, but disability in general as uh, mobility issues, wheelchairs. That's the first thing that people think. Uh, but disability is more than that. And uh, we, when we were fine, we, we didn't have uh, any signs of MS, uh, we probably thought the same way. Right? Yes, we yeah. didn't. No, completely. Quite understand, and, and I. Some, yeah. Sorry, I, no, sorry to interrupt you, but I was going to say I just I never understood that if you used a wheelchair, it meant that you could also stand up and walk. <laughs> you know what? I'm there with you. I'm glad that you put that in my mind because I think that I was the same. I think that I never thought of somebody in a wheelchair being able to move around and be ambulatory still. With trouble and maybe with the assistance of a, of a brace or a mobility aid, or maybe not. But sometimes you need to use the, the wheelchair. You see, when I was diagnosed, uh, I walked, I was, I was completely paralyzed. So I came back from, from the ashes. I had to learn to walk again and coordinate my movements and all that. But then I was fine for three and a half years. I had a little bit of a limp that only I noticed. Nobody else noticed. I could wear heels and nobody knew that I had this disability, but I felt disabled. I was not the same person. And that's how I started to understand that I'm walking to the store, but when I'm coming out of the store, I would really appreciate a wheelchair so I can get to the car because the legs feel heavy, spastic, right? You are exhausted by little things and and you don't think of that unless you actually experience them and you learn as you as you go so that's why I always say you have to be kind to other people that don't understand because you don't fit under their standards of what disability looks like because they come from a place of ignorance because they just have not lived the experience but I was there as well. I was ignorant at some point. No, exactly. And me too. And it's, you know, a lot of it is about the the kind of the available stories that circulate. And, you know, I remember um, in the UK, there was a, a show called Little Little Britain. You probably don't know it, but there was there was a, you know, it was a comedy sketch and there was a character in a wheelchair in this TV show. And the joke would be when he got up out of the chair, you know, that was when everybody would laugh because it was it was like you know the joke was oh he's just you know he's just pretending to be disabled when he's sitting in the chair and actually he can you know he can move around and make himself a brew in the kitchen or whatever which you know is my reality now <laughs> like you you will see me on the street using my chair and then I will get out of the chair you know move around my apartment on on two legs <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I understand. It's a misconception that people have about what disability looks like. Uh, and that's why we have this type of platform. So, you know, we bring awareness this way. So people have more consideration, a little bit more of, a, you know, be nicer. I came across a post the other day on social media and I had to repost it and it, it stayed in my head. You never know what's behind somebody's smile. That is profound. Why? Because 
when you live with a chronic disease, you are an expert at, you're the great pretender. You're an expert at pretending that everything is fine when, when, when it's not. Uh, we're going through a lot of things through, all throughout the day. Just never stops. And then on top, we have the physical deterioration and everything else that comes with that, right? So it's a hard place to be. It is. It is. It takes. Yeah. It is. It takes a lot of. Um, I think it's. I think it's also ongoing forever. <laughs> you know, I don't think. I don't think you ever get to a point where you feel like, okay, I am completely comfortable now with you know the way things are. I mean, because it is a degenerative condition, it means that you are faced with you know the knowledge that things are only going to get worse, and it's you know that's a. That's a, a complicated existential dilemma, essentially, you know, that you're having uh, every day. Yeah, you, you never come to terms in, uh, on, a, on a full degree. Like you, no, it's not. Don't really it, fully I think come to terms with being uh, chronically ill and living with a disability that you know it can potentially get worse. I think it's impossible to like fully come to terms because you, you know, the body is unstable. You know, there there is there is no stability anymore, and so it just it you have to kind of be prepared. Yeah, it's like you have to take it one day at a time. Absolutely, one day at a time. It's Absolutely. Like, it's, yeah. With this disease in particular, anything can happen, and you can plan something, and next day you can do it. So you just had to take it one day at a time, and that's it. And teach people around you to understand that that's how you roll now. <laughs> You know, it's the way way it is. All right. So speaking of sex and disability, um, so we already said your your current studies or research is in writing on sex and disability. You went over the fact that sex is not explored, but why you decided this is going to be my 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 theme this is what I'm going to focus on and after that I would like to if you feel comfortable to uh invite you to discuss how uh disability interferes on a personal level with the sexuality it's something that I'm glad that you're here <laughs> because it's something <laughs> that a lot of people don't dare <laughs> to speak about and I can yeah. I I don't have a filter so I can yeah. talk about you know sex and poop like we're talking about yes biscuits yeah yeah I, I really yeah. don't care good for you yeah I feel the same yeah, yeah. and definitely uh, I mean there's no doubt that disability affects your sexuality whether it's uh, you lose sensitivity you're numb on your private parts or on the down there's whatever you want to call it or you have hypersensitivity which is uh, something I live with. And so it makes sex pretty interesting. <laughs> and um, it's something that I don't hear uh, that in particular from people. I hear more about numbness when you have mobility issues than, you know, certain positions you cannot do anymore or, or they're uncomfortable or you cannot hold the, the position, whatever. And you have to accommodate or modify what you're doing. Like on your work calf, you, in particular, there's a modification from your partner in the in the story. I don't know. You call him a friend, so I don't know if he's a real partner <laughs> or he's just this friend in, in your head. But we leave it there. <laughs> that you, uh, the position of your legs in a loving way, change them so that you would not have to look at them and notice that you're, you know, that they're wobbly that or that your feet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, your feet are more triangular, like you said, on the <laughs> things like that. And then in a loving way, then he modifies that. And then, you know, you're still having sex and enjoying sex together. But there was a, a slight modification that, that changed. The reason that the modification was necessary is because this is this is a, a point of, uh, of real transition for me in in terms of, you know, my body and what it what it looks like. And so, you know, it's it's still a period of adjustment, I think, and which is why I think the moment was it worked it worked well for a story, I think, because you know it was it was tender and it was loving, and um, you could understand that he had some kind of empathy about my experience of the body of the body changing. But I think your your word modification or accommodation, I think you use those words. I think they're really useful when you're thinking about uh, disability in relation to sex 
because in some ways disability is a is a really useful tool for thinking about the ways in which we can be more attentive to actually what feels good <laughs> and what what doesn't feel good and to modifying and to accommodating and so you know forgetting about this idea of like what good sex should be or what it should look like you know what positions look good or how you know how a woman should be able to orgasm and all of those things you know it kind of disability means that you might not be able to do some of those things and (laughs) maybe that's a good thing (laughs) you know (laughs) maybe that's maybe that's good actually that you know you're not you're not able to be shoehorned into this this is the way that, you know, we all have sex and we all, we all climax. This is the, you know, and so I feel like that's the thing that I'm, I'm learning actually is the potential of disability is a really useful tool for, for, for just rethinking the way we approach sex and what sex is. So how do you uh, investigate or research sex and disability being you, I'm not sure, you tell me, the, the only person struggling or dealing or experiencing disability and having sex, how do you have reconciled the, both things in your personal experience? But how do you research about that? Do you interview people or tell me? It's Yeah, it's a good question. So my, my PhD is what's known as a practice research PhD and I don't know if you have an I imagine you must have an equivalent in the US but I'm not sure what it's called um but it it means and it's in the school of english so practice research means that your practice whatever your practice is so whether it's painting or whether it's performance or whether it's writing your practice is your research so my writing is is my research essentially and this took me about a year to understand actually that okay so my my own writing actually evidences the things that I'm I'm inquiring into so I don't have I don't necessarily have to I mean you can also if you want to but you don't have to write a kind of an accompanying you know thesis that's more traditionally academic if you don't want to um you can if you want to it's interesting that you mention about interview am I speaking to other people because that is something I would actually really like to do even though it would kind of fall outside of the remit of my PhD which is which is practice research, my own creative writing. Um, you know, I have been thinking about ways in which I might engage with, especially the MS community as well, with other people and and their sexual experiences since diagnosis and how how it's changed. Um, you know, their experience of sex. Um, and so I'm thinking about, and it might be a thing that I do post my PhD but it's definitely something I'm keeping in mind I would if, you're, assume in, if that, you're interested. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, like I said, I don't have problems talking about yeah. sex. It's, it's just it's normal thing. Um, so I would assume that you would have to have more sex. <laughs> in order to. Your, as part of your research, right? You have to have more sex for now. I mean, honey, this is just, you know, part of my research so I have to you know (laughs) come up with something it was it was quite funny because my one of my supervisors did say after I after I'd shown them calf you know he did say oh well you know this is great but we want to make sure that you're not you know feeling pressured every month to you know essentially go and and have go sex. and have sex in order to write something or, or, or new have about more it. sex partners to experience the difference between yeah I mean I'm thinking like how do you research that well so I what might be helpful to say is that actually the story the person in the story is my friend and so I I'm in an open relationship with my partner so I do have a main partner but I also which is very useful have have the opportunity to sleep with other you? people you're my hero <laughs> <laughs> okay go on i'm listening and cut <laughs> <laughs> that's great um i'm learning i'm learning here with you you see i have learned i'm a writer myself and i told you earlier yeah. that i have no i have realized that how little <laughs> i know about writing after yeah. reading your work and now how little I know about life and sex. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was very well experienced, but 
maybe not. All right. So we'll take this as encouragement to <laughs> to go forth and uh, yeah, we, you got me an open relationship. That from there, <laughs> I have nothing else to say. Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> cut. Um, so <laughs> there's yours funny visibility. <laughs> Can we focus here, please? Focus. <laughs> I'm focused. Yeah, Go for I it. I know. Go You're really it. good at talking about <laughs> sex. Um, so in terms of living with MS and living with a disability and having sex, like you said, you it would be a good idea to speak to other people. Um, I don't know if you have attempted to uh, or tried or, or, or have noticed because you are involved in the, I don't know, forums or the community, whatever. Um, but I have noticed that pe that's the, the thing or the theme that people don't want to discuss. They don't bring it up. I'm the administrator for a Facebook group, uh, a support group on Facebook for the company I write for. And there is 5,600 people, members. It's a big group. And there's people from everywhere in the world. And so this is something that it's not discussed. They, I've been, I've been administrating this group for over two years, maybe three years now. So I have seen many posts and I have to monitor every single one of them. And so they talk about spasticity. They talk about medications, newly diagnosed people that come to the group to ask questions or their partner to somebody that lives with multiple sclerosis or their family member whatever, or they are, in, they are in the limbo still in the process of getting diagnosed and they want to find out more. They have questions about DMTs, uh, things like that. But sex never comes up. I wrote an article about uh, MS and sex. Again, uh, I work for a company or, you know, I write for the com a company that is a medical uh, website. So there's certain standards that I had to, to, or guidelines that I had to follow. If it was me, I just would say like it is. But in a subtle, in a subtle way, but at the same time, very direct, I uh, write about the modifications couples have to do when MS gets in the way, the body starts to change, the sensations start to change. So one of the strategies is to do body mapping. I'd like to share this with you because you are researching on this. Body mapping is when you test the body of the person. Squeeze, you touch, you caress. That way that person can tell you or you can tell your partner, you know what? Mm, that area feels like it's burning. It's on fire or it has pins and needles. That I don't like that. It doesn't feel comfortable. I think it's a great strategy for you to know how your body is reacting to the touch, because sometimes we don't want to be touched. When you have hypersensitivity, like me, my skin hurts. And so, or it burns, or it's extremely sensitive. You know, when you are catching a f the flu and your skin is kind of like, mm, it bothers you. So I have those episodes. My clothes bother me. Sometimes I just have to take my shirt off. Of course, indoors. <laughs> And in my house, not like I'm taking off wherever <laughs> I go. Um, <laughs> but it's something that I need to do some, sometimes. So I take medication for that and it, it keeps it quiet. But it's not, it's not a good thing to, to live with. But when it comes to, to sex, it's the opposite. So I enjoy sex now better than I used to because I have hypersensitivity. And so it's, it's better. And isn't, isn't that an important story for people to hear? Yes. You know, the fact that, okay... I've become disabled and actually the sex I'm having now is better than what I was having before. I have a YouTube video that I uh, did with uh, another MS -er, Right. Uh, and we discussed that. I would love to see this and to read yeah, the article as well. It's on my YouTube channel. Yeah, great. The MS Positive channel. Thank you. On YouTube, <laughs> visit and subscribe. I discussed that with him and I decided to make this video with a male partner, not my partner, but a male in the, in the video. So he could give the perspective of sex with disability as, you know, from the male point of view. So it was very interesting because he was uh, very much affected by MS. Uh, and that's actually how he found out. Or one of the things that it was a red flag, why things are not working if I'm so young. And, and then I share my experience with hypersensitivity and we were laughing it out at, at, at some point because I'd say, you know, this is like a perk 
I had this uh, reward. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is the one thing that you <laughs> can have that's better. This is the one thing that I would <laughs> yeah. <not> change. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. in a way, it has improved, um, yeah. you know, my sex but life. But it's, it's, so. So, it's so important to hear, you know, to hear those things, which is not to say that, you know, disability is not difficult or that, you know, the changes in your body can't be frustrating. Of course, that's also true. But it is worth, you know, also talking about the ways in which actually the changes are are beneficial or have been positive. One of the things that I started doing for my PhD was, I, or I had a consultation with um, another neurologist last year, and I drew a body map. I thought of this because you said body mapping. So I drew a body map and I listed all of my all of my symptoms, you know, and, and the different areas where they were affected. And one of the things that I'd I'd pinpointed was what they call in the medical establishment sexual dysfunction and so i'd i'd written sexual dysfunction and you know the neurologist kind of just um you know looked at it and said ah uh sexual dysfunction and i said yes that was the end of that conversation and so which you know understandably i think you can imagine this scenario a lot that you know neurologists who have been working in neurology for many years don't know how to you know go about discussing sexual experience with I mean let's say with a young woman especially but what I decided to do afterwards was to write a fictional letter so it's just dear doctor I elaborate or I I explain exactly what I meant when I said sexual dysfunction and this has turned into <laughs> this is my this is my not my most recent project but the one before but it's turned into like 10,000 words of these letters to my neurologist about about the terms about the terms sexual function or sexual dysfunction I mean what do they even mean really you know when you start thinking about it what does it mean to be sexually functional or dysfunctional and so I was thinking maybe this is a an interesting thing I could start to do with other other people with MS you know to write fictional letters to their neuros about <laughs> about that's pretty interesting sexual that's function great. and dysfunction <laughs> Very interesting. Letters to my neurologist. That's that's great. You gave me an idea. You know, I'm here like... Uh Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, good. You know, before I write, you probably know I do some research. I can't just write out of my butt. I have to research, you know, and refresh my mind, make sure that what I'm saying is correct. If I'm mentioning something that is medical. But one of the things I discover is that there are... It's not sexual toys. it's, It's devices. It's, it's like, uh, and I'm talking about like furniture that is <laughs> furniture pieces that are designed for people with disability to have sex. Have you ever heard of that? No, that I was, have not. That was new for me. Uh, uh, it, I came across, I wasn't looking for it. I came across that information and it, it blew my mind, honestly, because they are like when you have weakness from the waist down, you can't hold positions so they have this pillows and kind of furnitures and tables and stuff even things that hang from the ceiling that you can incorporate it's crazy you can incorporate and 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 it's it's amazing because you still you can still have you know fun sex and get creative i think it's even better than regular yes. sex i'll yeah, be honest yeah, with you yeah yeah well there we go and then something i have I didn't know. I didn't know. So I learned that through that research that I was. That's great. Uh, making I'm for gonna it. look into it. <laughs> yeah, really, really interesting. So there's a lot there. I guess that we still have to explore. Um, makes me very curious, to be honest with you. Uh, when I saw the furniture, and I was like, "Wow!" I had no idea that somebody could think of that and actually make it, and they're selling it. So. There's a market for that. The kind of the biggest myth, I think, that disabled people are often coming up against is the idea that they don't want sex or they don't have sex. You know, if you're disabled, you're asexual or, you know, you don't even have you don't even have those thoughts or those desires. Um, And so it's yeah, of course, the furniture is out there and exists because, you know, disabled people are humans. I've heard stories of people that um, have divorced because MS interfere with their sexual life, uh, especially, you know, when it's very common for men to suffer from ED, erectile dysfunction, when they have multiple uh, sclerosis. 
it's hard for a man to talk about it. A regular man that's healthy. Imagine somebody that has um, multiple sclerosis at a young age. So it is, it's, it's hard uh, to, to discuss it. Also, her stories of couples that have stayed together, but they don't have sex ever since the diagnosis came in. Like, how is that a healthy marriage? There's options. There's, there's things that you, 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 can, you can change it around. You know, you can find ways. Um, so it's not the end. But this is absolutely where, you know, just being able to talk about it is actually the most helpful thing. You know, so it's interesting that you say that about your about this this Facebook group, you know, the fact that it's just not a thing that's discussed. I mean, if it was if it was something that you could be openly expressed, you'd imagine that maybe there would be, you know, what did you say? Five thousand five thousand five thousand six hundred, I think. We're yeah, that there would you know, you would if everybody felt able to, you know, come to that group and to post something about their sexual experience you would just the amount of information would be you know incredibly useful right when my uh, articles go live either i post them on the group or the company eventually posts them and they it was posted i remember if it was me or them the one that i wrote about ms and sex and it had not one com- it didn't have one comment people didn't dare to comment they comment on everything else but people didn't open up you know, because it's, and yeah, because it's not it's, easy. It's, hard. To it's not easy. It's uncomfortable, and I think it should be normalized. That's what I, exactly what I'm hoping for. So I'm hoping that just by by talking about it more and more openly, that it does just become you know, like you said, like just like talking about the football <laughs> or something. So maybe by the time you finish your PhD, you'll be <laughs> able to uh, write a book, your book, complete book. And maybe you can explore that more and just throw it out there in, in, in the book uh, for, for members of the community to relate to it. I'm, I'm sure that everybody goes through it. They, ju- they just don't say it. It's always been an uncomfortable uh, topic for a lot of people. For me, it has never been. But I understand that not everybody is yeah, as open. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I understand that and I respect that. And when it comes to uh, chronic disease, it really it can really affect your life because it's not just talking about sex, but then you go to the room and have the best sex of your life. Nobody knows. It's, it's, this is more about how this can end your relationship or it can make it better if you try, right? It'd be interesting to see if you can uh, publish a book about that. Well, let's keep in touch about, about our uh, writings in on sex and disability. Great. So it's been great to have you here, uh, Melissa. I enjoyed your company today. I'm glad that you are as open as I am uh, when it comes to talking about sex and disability. I appreciate that you are actually researching about that and you are studying it. And um, I, um, I think that we need, you know, more um, of this type of conversations on the public eye. I mean, like in podcasts or uh, YouTube videos or whatever. Um, I think I'm going to, I have an idea. I think I'm going to invite you again, not just here, but maybe we can do a little project uh, together oh, about yeah, if you sure. are open to. For sure. Yeah. And I should say actually that there there is now some, so a, a platform called Shift.ms, which you know about, I think there is, they've released a, a series of videos uh, not too long ago called, I think it's called Womanhood. Womanhood. I was going to mention that. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. And so there are, you know, there are advocates within the MS community who are talking more openly about sex. I have done some work with uh, some of the members that were in the in the video. So I watch. Yes, I watch. Um, it, it, I think it's a podcast uh, that they have. It was a podcast episode and the, th- the theme is womanhood. And they talk, I love that they talk very open about how they're, they're young ladies and pretty ladies, attractive, that any man would be attracted to them, but they don't know that they live with this disability. And one of them was saying um, that the guy is probably thinking, oh my gosh, she sucks in bed. And she's like in her head, I don't suck in bed. She's just, I am freaking tired. I actually suck in bed. Well, <laughs> She should have said that and say, I actually do. <laughs> but, um, you know, like she was not good in bed. Let's say, let's rephrase that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, that, um, and that she said, it's, it's not, that's not who I am. I'm just super, super, extremely tired. 
because she lives in multiple sclerosis, but she's super hot and she doesn't have mobility issues. You cannot tell. It must be a tricky spot to be, you know, when you are dating. How do you explain that? You know, when it comes to you're already, you know, there, you're going to have sex with that person, but then your body is like, mm, you know what? Things, no. Well, Things hopefully are- the person you're having sex with is open to you communicating, <laughs> which is a great, I guess. which is a great start. <laughs> it's, it's a great start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's a good, if it's a one night stand, then you don't really yeah. talk much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then how do you, you know, you have to mm. pretend, I don't know. I don't know. I guess you got, you have to uh, analyze the situation individually yeah. at yeah. the moment. Well, thank you again for being here. We kind of open up another thing. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Shift MS. Uh, yeah, I, I highly encourage people to watch that. Uh, look it up. I think it's on YouTube as well. Interesting video. It's called Womanhood. It's a series. And the girls talk it, you know, they say like it is. It's, it's great. I love it. Glad you were here. I hope that you come back and I I will contact you <laughs> for a future project. So um, thank you so much. And I really admire your work. You're a great writer. Thank you for letting me have you in the show. Uh, it, it's amazing what you're doing. And, it, you know, I, I really admire you from this point forward. I just uh, met you uh, recently and I really developed a sense of admiration for you as a writer myself. I'm inspired by your work. Thank you for having me, Maite. This has been a wonderful Uh, conversation. I've really loved it. I'll see you next time. We'll be in touch. Take care, Melissa.